Today we're going to be talking about John 17. I'm really excited to talk to you guys about John 17 this morning. It's a passage that means a lot to me, and I think it's a pretty distinct passage in the Bible. We don't have a lot of passages like it. John 17 is a prayer by Jesus to the Father the night before his crucifixion. Christian tradition knows this prayer as the high priestly prayer. So if you look in the heading in your Bible, you'll probably see it as the high priestly prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer because in the Old Testament, high priests would intercede on behalf of the Israelites to God. And that's what Jesus was doing here. He's the ultimate high priest. And this is him interceding um, on our behalf to the Father. So that's why it's called the high priestly prayer. Um, It's a very special text. It should mean a lot um, to you as a believer. It means a lot to me. It's broken up into three distinct sections. It's pretty special because it's very, very clear who Jesus is praying for in each of those three sections. So he's praying for three different people or groups of people. In the first section, Jesus is praying for himself. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying that he would be glorified. In section 2, Jesus is praying for the immediate group of 11 disciples that are around him. That's in verses 6 through 19, and he's praying that they would be sanctified. And then section 3, the section that we're going to be focusing in on today, uh, is in verses 20 to 26. And Jesus is praying for the believers yet to come, for future believers, that they would be unified. Uh, So that's what we're going to be focusing in on today. And I've been noticing in Riverside this past year, we've kind of had this theme where we were focusing on trials and suffering. We had the fiery trial sermon series and a couple other sermons that are really focusing in on this idea of suffering. There are very few things I personally find more comforting than when a friend or someone I really value um, in the Lord says, I'm going to pray for you when you're in this trial. I think that you guys can probably understand how meaningful that is. It just calms your spirit. You feel like, wow, God has got this. This person is interceding on my behalf to to God, and it's so meaningful. Uh, A lot of times, though, I think we will say this to people and we'll kind of be like, yeah, I'm so sorry you're going through that. I'll pray for you. And then we go home and completely forget about it. So I think we could probably do a little bit better. I know me personally, I could do a little bit better um, interceding for you guys. But it is so meaningful when someone you really, really value in the Lord that you really respect uh, prays for you. I think we all kind of have those people in our lives who are like those prayer warriors who when they say, I'm going to pray for you, you know, A, they're going to pray for you, and B, you know, wow, that is going to be an impactful prayer. I had a Sunday school teacher in sixth grade named Mrs. Schaefer, and I had the, the pleasure of praying with her, I think about six months ago, maybe a year ago, uh, again, and it was just so impactful. Like, it, it like hit me in my soul. Uh, it was like she was holding my hand. I could like feel the vibes just going on up to God. She even like takes her shoes off. She told me to take my shoes off. She's like, we're on holy ground. Like it was just, it was one of those rich moments, you know? And I think we all have that person in our life. But the beautiful thing is that that comfort, that uh, consolation that we receive when someone of that kind of spiritual stature prays for us, we have that going on right now in heaven. Jesus is actually interceding on our behalf to the Father right now in heaven. We're told this. Um, But also in our scripture today, we're going to see a time when Jesus was on earth that he actually interceded on our behalf. So let me pray and then we will read the passage together. Father God, we just love you so much. Jesus, we're so thankful for what you did for us on the cross. I just pray that today, uh, as as we're reading through this scripture, as we're trying to understand this scripture, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. 
I pray that you would help us to understand what you were saying. Uh, help us to understand this prayer in John 17. Uh, and, and direct our hearts, Lord. Work on our hearts. Draw us closer to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in John 17, verses 20 through 26. It should be up on the screen. Uh, Starting in verse 20, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who, you, who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world might know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory and you've given me, that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, I know there's a lot of I in them and you in me, and it's kind of like a convoluted passage. It seems kind of repetitive, a little bit confusing, but don't worry, we're going to work through it. Hopefully, it will be crystal clear. Um, first thing I want to point out, just reading this passage right off the bat, it just strikes me. It is so remarkable. This is a prayer in the past, 2,000 years ago, in which Jesus is praying specifically for me as a future believer and for you as a future believer. So whatever Jesus is saying in this passage for us as believers, I think should hold significant weight. We should really be looking at this like, wow, this was the night before Jesus died. He, was, he, he knew he was about to go through immense trials, yet he took the time to pray for us as future believers. I think we should really take some stock in that. We should really, really look into this and be like, what in the world is Jesus praying about for me in the future? Like, wow, that is something. But if you're, you're sitting here and you're an unbeliever, if you've not yet um, proclaimed that you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I don't want you to just check out because this is a prayer for future believers. I actually think this prayer is also for you, and we'll go through that as we go through. So kind of stick with me so you can get the full picture. Um, just hear me out here as we're going through this. Uh, so in this prayer, we can break it down into two basic sections, two basic things that Jesus is praying for us. He's praying, one, that we would have unity with one another as believers, and he's praying, two, that we would have intimacy with him. So we're going to kind of go through both of those um, in order. So the first one is that Jesus prays for the unity of each other. Jesus is praying for us as believers that we'd be unified with each other. So looking at verses 20 and 21, it says, I do not ask for only these, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So when he's saying only these, he's talking about the previous section where he was praying for the 11 disciples around him. So he's saying not only for these, but also the people who will believe in me in the future. That's us. He's saying that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's praying that we would be one. All over the Bible, this is not a new concept. God is showing his desire for the unity of his people. We see this in Psalm 133, where it says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like a precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard. 
I know there are a couple bearded folks in here, and you know that this is no insignificant thing. Beard oil is an absolutely lovely thing, and if, you don't, if you're not into it already, you should definitely get into it. It's just so nice. You rub it in the beard. It makes it so soft, fragrant, aromatic. It's nothing like pizza juices rolling down your, your face. It's nothing like that. It's an absolutely delightful experience. So I totally get um, what David's getting at in Psalm 133. We see it throughout the New Testament as well. Uh, One of the common themes throughout Paul's letters is this unity of believers. We actually saw it last week with Paul when he preached his sermon uh, from Ephesians. It was on this exact thing, unity that Paul was calling calling us to as believers. Um, And obviously we see it in our text this morning where Jesus is praying to the Father that we would be one. So we have to ask ourselves two questions based on Jesus' prayer. Firstly, Why is unity so important to Jesus? Why, the night before Jesus was put to death, would he be praying for our unity? Why was it so important? And secondly, how do we find this unity? So I'm going to actually unpack these questions in reverse order. So I'm going to go backwards. Um, So we live in this broken world, right? We live in this world of the flesh, where disunity is kind of our natural state. We all tend to go toward disunity. So how are we supposed to find unity in this broken world, in this um, horribly sinful world? In verse 21, the first part of verse 21, it says that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. 22, the second part, 22b, says that they may be one, even as we are one. Or we look at verse 23, the first part. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So the answer to this question How do we find our unity? The source of our unity with one another is our union with God. So the source of our unity is the gospel. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been perfectly unified since eternity past, since the beginning of the, since the foundation of the world and beyond. And the gospel reconciles us into that unity with God. Jesus is saying that Christian unity doesn't come from our own efforts. It's not something we can try really hard to achieve. It's not something that we can do ourselves. Our unity is something that comes from God, and we celebrate our gospel connection that we have in our unity with God. The gospel is what leads to our unity. So let me explain to you how this works. And if you're an unbeliever, especially listen to this part, um, I think that this will really connect with you. So traditional religion, right? The way that wor- the world views religion, just kind of your common view of religion, is that there are good people and there are bad people, right? So you have these good people who are doing all of the things they're supposed to be doing. These are your holier-than-thou people who are just kind of like, they're following everything by the, by the dot. They are absolutely on it. And then you have these bad people. The bad people are everyone else, right? So the good people are on one side, we got bad people on the other side. That's traditional religion, the way the world oftentimes views religion. Very divided thing, right? But if we look at the world, we also have millions and millions of divisions that we could come up with. Um, We have divisions by race. We have divisions by how successful you are as a person, by finances, by hobbies, age, demographics. We have divisions by genders, political affiliations, and we tend to gravitate toward the people that are similar to us and kind of push away the people who are not similar to us. So we have this divisiveness all throughout the world. But the gospel of Jesus Christ shatters all of these things. The gospel says that we are made in the image and likeness of God. So if you are a human, 
Just off the bat, you have immense worth and value. Each one of us, though, has fallen into sin. All of us have rebelled against God. We have not lived up to his perfect standard. So we have these religious people, the religious guy over here who thinks he's doing absolutely everything he should be doing. And then we have these people over here who are all the other people who are just doing whatever they want to do. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, those people are on the same exact footing in heaven. These religious people aren't better off than these non-religious people. That's not, that's not how the gospel works. So what the gospel really says is that we're all sinners. We're all in need of saving grace. It's not that the religious people have saved themselves. That's impossible because they're sinners as well. The gospel says that if we trust in Jesus, if we have faith in what Jesus did on the cross, that he died and he was the only way for us to be made right with God, that is the only way to be saved. That's the only way to be reconciled to God, just to have faith in what Jesus did because he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the only one who could fulfill that need. So let me give you an example. Imagine there was a shipwreck and on this ship, there were rich people, there were poor people, all of these divisions I was just talking about. Um, some people think they're better than other people. Some people are really famous. Some people have a million Instagram followers. Some people have no friends and they're poor, right? All of these people sank on this ship. They're in these icy waters. They're all in equal need of saving. That's what I'm saying here. So every person needs saving, whether they were rich, whether they're black, whether they're white. Everyone needs it. It's not one person more than another, all of them need that rescue boat to come by. So this is what the gospel is like. Every one of us is dead in our sins, and we need Jesus to rescue us as our Savior. He is the only way. Um, And this happens through our faith in his grace. Our unity is one that's in relation to this gospel. Our unity is because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what our unity comes from and nothing else. One of the things I love so much about Riverside, and we don't do it perfectly, but I think we do see a snapshot of this unity just in the diversity that we have in Riverside. We have all sorts of races at Riverside. We have black people, white people, Asian people, Hispanic people. I mean, even more than that, right? Um, It's pretty amazing. I don't think that we see that in too many churches, so I feel super blessed to be a part of that. Um, We have young people. We have old people, rich people, poor people. We have people who are political liberals, political conservatives. Um, So we're obviously not here because of our commonalities, right? We're not here because we're all the same. We don't have commonalities. We only have one, and that is our common Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the reason that we're here together in unity. And I think as a church, we actually do a pretty good job of recognizing this. Um, and the the importance of unity. This is why we do things like last year, we were working toward racial reconciliation um, in the church as a whole. We were doing a study on that. We identified a place where the Christian church is actually experiencing brokenness and disunity, and we're working working toward reconciling that through the gospel. Not through any effort on our own, not not like we're, we're trying to get along as different races. It's that the gospel is what makes us be able to be unified. So that's what we were working toward last year, and I think it's awesome that we recognize that as a church. Uh, so let's shift our, our focus now to this second question, right? Um, the question of why is unity so important to Jesus? So Jesus is showing us that unity, it's a big deal to him, right? It was very important. He prayed for it on the night before he died, so why, is he, why does he care so much about this unity? So he's showing us that unity can be one of the most compelling tools for us 
to show the onlooking world his love, to show the onlooking world the gospel. We see this in verse 21. Verse 21 says that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We see it again in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. So the sake of our unity, the reason for our unity, the reason Jesus cared so much that we are unified as a church is the mission of God. It's the gospel. The reason that Jesus cared so much that we're unified is so that the outside world might know him, that they would see our unity and this would draw them to him. Unity is an evangelistic necessity. It's not optional. John 13, 35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the way people recognize who we are in Christ, is our unity, our love. It's of utmost importance that we as the church are of one mind when it comes to the purpose of our unity. Our unity isn't just so everyone feels good, so they can feel like they're a part of a club, so that they feel connected to people. These are amazing byproducts of our unity, but these are not the reason for our unity. The reason for our unity is for the sake of the world, that they would know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is the reason we seek unity. So let me give you an example um, of what having kind of a disconnect there as the purpose of our unity would be. So let's say we have this guy, it's the new year, right? People are trying to work out. We have this guy who got a Planet Fitness membership. He's just trying to lose some weight. He has a little bit of a gut. And he's been doing well. He's been going like five days a week. He's been doing the ARC trainer. That's my very favorite thing at Planet Fitness because I just I feel like I can go a half hour, no problem on it. Um, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. It's kind of like a Stairmaster mixed with an elliptical. So he's been doing this, right? But he's feeling like, I could really use a workout buddy. I could use a workout partner to help me, motivate me uh, to keep going to the gym. So he goes on Planet Fitness's Facebook for his, his area, and he types, hey, I'm looking for a workout buddy five days a week, and he gets a response right away. He's really excited. This guy's like, yeah, man, me too. I've been trying so hard, um, but I could really use someone to motivate me. Let's meet up. So they decide, okay, they're going to meet up on those hand chairs. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. They have these chairs that are like this, and you sit in them. Um, they're like purple and yellow. They're awesome. Um, they actually have surprisingly good back support. But anyway, so they're going to meet there at 6 o'clock. The guy gets there at 6.05, so he's like, I know he's going to be here already. He walks in. There's only one guy sitting on that hand chair, and it's the biggest, muscliest guy in the entire world. This bodybuilder, he's just getting jacked, absolutely huge, and he knows right away. He just gets this sinking feeling in his gut. He knows this isn't going to work out. You see, they, on paper, had the exact same goal. They both needed a workout buddy to motivate them at the gym. But ultimately, their goal wasn't the same. They had completely different agendas. They were not going to be able to work together. The one guy was just trying to get someone to go on the ARC trainer with him for 30 minutes. The other guy is trying to become a world-renowned power lifter. So ultimately, there was a disconnect there. Even though it looks like they're both seeking the same thing, they were doing so for different reasons. And that's what we can be like as a church sometimes. If we're seeking unity, it's, it's a wonderful thing. But we need to be seeking unity for the right reason, and that reason is reaching the world with the gospel. And it's humbling, though, to realize that the best way for us to reach the world with the gospel might not be the, the way in which we articulate the gospel. It might not be being able to say just the right words at the right time. 
possibly the best way for us to reach the world with the gospel is if we can simply get along with one another. It's pretty humbling to think that. And Jesus is saying it's by our unity that the world will see that Jesus is sent by the Father. Now, I'm not saying that this removes any um, need for us to go out and share the gospel verbally with people or uh, to serve people. I'm not saying that at all. If we just get along, everyone's going to, to come to know Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, actually, quite the contrary. I think that our unity can be one of the best tools we can use um, in an evangelistic sense. So, for example, our small group in Lansdale, we've been really, God has just laid on our heart his mission. We really want to see people in Lansdale uh, come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. That is at, at the core of our heart. We're really trying to figure out the best way to do that. We're still working through this. Um, but we have a lot of different people who have different abilities, different personalities, who are a part of our small group at Lansdale. So, for example, we might have one person who meets a new person um, and invites them over for a game night on a Friday night, for example. Then we have someone else who's really good at making them feel welcome into the group. Um, so it's not necessarily the first person's talent, but the second person's really good at making them feel welcome. Then you might have a third person who's really good at keeping connected with them throughout the week. They're really good at texting them, seeing how they're doing, making them feel um, loved and wanted throughout the week. And then maybe you have a fourth person in your group who's really good at articulating the gospel, um, really good at telling them who Jesus is and what he did for them, how he died on the cross for their sins, uh, and that if they believe in him, they can have eternal life. Um, so that's just an example of how this diversity, we can be different people, but if we have one unified goal, uh, our unity can be an amazing tool when it comes to sharing the gospel with the world. So another thing, too, that we need to kind of keep in mind is that our unity needs to be visible. This isn't something where um, this is all behind closed doors and we all get along. Like, that doesn't matter. That's not the purpose of our unity. The world needs to see this unity. And I think that Facebook is one of the places where people are going to see this the first, right? We've all seen those very, very cringy Facebook theological conversations where people are arguing back and forth with one another, this is not what unity looks like. Um, unity looks like us loving one another. That it, love has to be at the core of any kind of disagreement that we have. So what does it mean to be unified? Christians disagree on a lot of things, right? That's not an uncommon thing to see. We have theological differences. Uh, we have all these different denominations, right? Uh, so obviously Christians disagree on some things. So does this mean that we have to kind of reduce everything to the lowest theological common denominator? Do we have to go as basic as possible to the point where everyone agrees with each other? Is that the idea of unity? Do we ignore the differences that we have for the sake of unity? I think it is very possible to disagree with one another. I think that as a brother and sister in Christ, we definitely can disagree. I don't think that disagreement equals disunity. In fact, I think the gospel affords us the opportunity to disagree with one another. The gospel doesn't say that we're made right with God because we agree on all the same things, because we believe all the same minute details, right? What does the gospel say? The gospel says that we're made right with God because of Jesus Christ and what he did. So we're secure in our union with God, right? We're secure as believers, and that unites us together. So we can debate these issues. We can do so robustly, fully, thoughtfully, but we have to have love and graciousness at the center. That is the key. The way we handle our disagreements with one another 
might actually be one of our greatest witnesses to the world. The world will look at us and they'll say, wow, you guys are different denominations and you don't agree on baptism and yet you still love each other? Yeah, we love each other. We're believers. They'll look at us and be like, wow, you guys don't have the same skin color and you still love each other? Yeah, we love each other. We're believers. You're telling me you guys could be different political parties, political parties, and you still love each other? Yeah, we love each other. We would die for one another. We're believers, right? So family, it's up to us to do this. It's up to us to show the world that we're unified so that they would know Jesus. Our unity has never been based on our similarities um, as the world would see them. It's not based on our, our socioeconomics. It's not based on our race. It's not based on our political affiliations, right? The reputation of the gospel is what's at stake with this unity. We need to take this very seriously, but we need to realize that our unity is something that only comes from God, only comes from who we are in Christ. Unity is an evangelistic necessity, and it's why it was so important to Jesus. That's why Jesus prayed that on the night before he died. So the second thing Jesus is praying for is that we would have intimacy with him. So Jesus prays for God to make us one with one another, And then he's praying for intimacy with him. Intimacy is something that sometimes for people can be a little bit uncomfortable. The idea of hugging or feelings, vulnerability. um, It's a little bit rough for some people. But the goal of the gospel isn't just a ticket to heaven. Yes, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, absolutely you'll go to heaven. Uh, But the goal of the gospel is to make us right with God and make us in a loving, life-giving, real relationship with God right here, right now. So Jesus is praying for us to have intimacy with him in two ways. The first one is closeness to him in the future, that we would be near to him. So we see this in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This is a good Bible verse. This is something to rejoice in. Jesus is asking that we would be where he is. Do you guys know where Jesus is? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is in heaven. This is a passage where Jesus is literally praying that you would go to heaven. And Jesus' prayers are answered. We know Jesus' prayers are answered. We've seen this throughout the Bible. Jesus' prayers are answered. So how comforting, how secure can you feel that Jesus prayed this for you? That is incredible, I think. I think a lot of times um, we love to see people who we, who we really, really respect. Sometimes it could be an actor. If you get to meet an actor, it's really exciting. Um, I work at Lakeside School in Horsham. It's just a couple minutes away. It's an alternative school. And I have a co-teacher named Kevin. Kevin had a very exciting experience the other week. He was showing me all sorts of pictures and videos. He took a half day. He traveled to New Jersey. And he met his rock icon. Kevin was in a band, he loves playing bass, and he got to meet Getty Lee from Rush, who's the bassist from Rush. He was so excited, he waited in this like two hour long line, took videos and pictures of the whole thing. He finally got up to him, he gave him a hat, he got something signed, it was, it was like less than five seconds, but Kevin was showing me like every detail on his phone, like he was just so excited, it was one of the best moments of his life. Do you guys understand how much better it is 
when we get to meet Jesus? This is what he was praying for. Jesus wants to be with us, and we're going to get to meet the creator of the universe. That is going to feel so secure, so comforting. It's going to be absolutely unbelievable. And I just have to find my last page, sorry. Something went awry. Here we go. It's going to be a joyous moment, and we're guaranteed this to be in the Lord's presence if we believe in him as our Savior. Nothing's going to be sweeter. Nothing's going to be more excellent. This is going to be the pinnacle of anything we've ever experienced. I don't think we can even understand. Jesus is also praying for a second thing, though. Not only was he praying that we would be with him in the future, but he also prays that we'd be close to him here and now. We see this in verse 26. I made, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love in which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So I need you to know, if you've ever questioned how God feels about you, if you've ever wondered, how does God feel about me? It couldn't be stated more clearly than in this verse. The reason I have made your name known to them, Father, is so that your love will be in them. This is the good news of the gospel. This love is available to us, not because we're lovable, not because we're worthy, not because we deserve this love, not because we love Jesus first. This love is available to us in spite of our inadequacies, in spite of the fact that we're unlovable, in spite of the fact that we push him away, we push each other away. God wants, to live, wants us to live in unity, but we choose to live in rebellion and disunity with one another. But despite this, Jesus' love for us is unwavering. So knowing these two things that Jesus was praying for, how does this change our lives in this room on a daily basis? Well, it depends who you are. If you're an unbeliever, I urge you to see that what Jesus was praying for here has you in mind. The reason that Jesus was praying for us to have this unity was so that you might know his love. This is at the forethought of his mind. This is what he wants. He wants you to know him as your savior. So I urge you to consider that. I urge you to consider who Jesus was and consider what he did for you. Remember that you can't do it yourself. You'll never be good enough uh, to make it into the presence of God. But Jesus was, and he died on your behalf so that you can be saved. And all he asks is that you have faith in him. So please consider that if you're an unbeliever. Consider taking another step. Talk to someone after the service if you're thinking about this. If you're a believer sitting in this room, I want you to kind of look inward. Look at, look at your heart. Look at your life. I want you to ask yourself this question first. Are you in community with other believers? Are you living in community with other believers? I believe that you have to be in community with other believers to be in unity with other believers. I don't believe that this unity is something that can occur independently. This isn't something that you can just do alone at your house. It doesn't count. You're not unified with anyone if you're doing this alone. A lot of times at Lakeside, this alternative school that I work with, we have kids who come in who just put their hoods up, they put their headphones in, they shuffle around looking at the ground, they don't talk to anyone. And you might look at that kid and be like, wow, that kid's not fighting with anyone, that kid's not causing a disruption, right? So he, he's, he's a good kid, I guess. Uh, but really, those kids are some of the kids who might have the most beef in all of the kids in Lakeside. 
But it's the kids who come into Lakeside who interact with the staff, interact with other students who you really see change by the end of their time at Lakeside. So I urge you, if you're coming into church like one of those kids with their, their hoods up and their headphones in, I consider you to rec recognize that in your life. Are you being one of those kids? Are you just coming into the church service, sitting down, listening to the sermon, singing a few songs, walking out, and you don't interact with anyone who's a part of Riverside throughout the entire week? Is that you? Um, if so, I need you to really consider doing something about that. There are a lot of things you could do about it. My number one recommendation, and this has changed my life the most, is becoming a part of a small group, a community group here at Riverside. We have a bunch of them. They're on the website. You can look them up. I would highly recommend getting involved because that's a way to interact with people on a weekly basis where you get to really get to know who they are um, so that you can be in community with them. You could do other things like join a ministry team. We have that ministry fair coming up um, in February? I don't know. January? Sometime. I'll be there. Um, so get involved in a ministry. There are a ton of different ministries you can get involved in at Riverside. And that's just, not only are you going to be helping out um, around Sunday morning, but you're also getting involved with people you serve with, people you get to know people, you get to know families. So you could get involved in a ministry. But if you're not ready to do any of those things, you could even just meet someone new today. I'm sure you've shook, shook the hands of a bunch of people around you when we turned and greeted each other, right? After the service, say hi to them again. Reintroduce yourself because no one actually takes stock of who, what your name is when we do that. And maybe invite them out to lunch. I know it's a tough step. It's like crazy socializing, right? But this, it's so, so rewarding. I just can't even express to you. Um, Get involved. You've got to get to know people. Invite someone over to your house uh, for the weekend or something like that. Just, just get involved. Get to know people. Go that extra step. But if you are living in unity, or if you are living in community, I want you to look at your life and ask yourself, are you living in unity with other believers? Are you guys after the same goal? Are you trying to reach the world with his gospel? Are you trying to tell them who Jesus is and what they did for them? Is that your goal in unity? So be looking at that if you are in community. And I'll tell you this, I, I personally am so glad that Jesus prayed this prayer 2,000 years ago. I found myself in, in community and in unity with people that I would have probably never interacted with apart from him. And it's so amazing to see the way that he's changed my life through these people. He's changed my heart. And I just, I want you all to experience that so badly. Um, so please consider doing so. Um, I've just had the privilege of seeing so many people's lives change through community, in unity, through his gospel. Um, he's transformed me. He's transformed so many others. So please consider doing that. Let's pray.